This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future by Roberto J. Gonzalez. Cultural anthropologist Roberto J. Gonzalez tells a gripping story of what lies behind the autonomous weapons, robotic systems, predictive modeling software, and advanced surveillance programs that are transforming the nature of military conflict. The book takes a critical approach to the techno-utopian view of these advancements and their dubious promise of less deadly and more efficient warfare taking an unflinching look at the processes by which the Pentagon and U.S. intelligence agencies have quietly joined forces with big tech, Gonzalez highlights the alarming prospect of an algorithmic future in which new military technologies threaten democratic governance and human survival. War Virtually by Roberto J. Gonzalez, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We have come a long way from the summer of 2020's call to defund the police to Biden's recent State of the Union injunction that we ought to do precisely the opposite. Major social movements are almost inevitably met with reaction, and the movement to shift funding from repression to care that exploded in the wake of George Floyd's murder has been no exception. Today, my guests are Maryam Kaba and Gio Mar, and we're discussing police, the politics of policing, police abolition, and where reform fits and does not fit into it all. We see this backlash, or what Maryam argues is in fact a front lash every day, most recently when a seemingly mentally ill and ideologically idiosyncratic man who recently lived in Milwaukee came to New York and shot people on the subway, that being somehow made into a sign of the collapse of order in New York City and the need for more police to arrest what is framed as a descent into the law of the jungle. Just as the current monetary inflation is overwhelmingly driven by sector-specific increases in the price of energy, food, and shelter, alongside supply chain disruptions more generally, there is likewise no generally massive spike in crime taking place. There is a rise in violence because of what people and society just went through during the pandemic. And yet, even though this increase in violence has nothing to do with policing and nothing to do with the false claim that departments like the NYPD were successfully defunded, the proposed solution is always more cops. Today, we discuss how policing fabricates the social order required for capitalist accumulation and why checking police power, including the powerful reactionary force wielded by so-called police unions, how that requires building alternatives and eradicating the social conditions that make living in a police and prison state seem like a necessity to so many. I also ask Mary Ann and Gio a question about how socialists who oppose mass incarceration should think about abolition or whether the position requires an anarchist critique. If a stateless society is impossible, can we have a state that doesn't maintain, even at much reduced levels, the repressive forces that are key to a state's monopoly on violence? It is a complicated question that they have some nuanced thoughts on, 
even if they are inevitably provisional ones. This is a really fantastic discussion. Do you listen to this podcast frequently? If so, you probably also like this podcast a lot because it is way too long for a hate listen. If you do love The Dig, then please put your money where your ears are and contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. The reason this podcast can go so in-depth is because it's my full-time job. And the reason that is miraculously possible and why I'm able to pay our producer Alex Lewis and everyone who helps on the podcast is because listeners, listeners just like you listening now, contribute. That's also why The Dig, unlike many other fine podcasts, do not have a paywall on any episodes. We are very committed to everyone being able to listen to every episode, regardless of your ability to pay. But if you can afford to contribute, please do so, and a contribution of any size at all gets you access to our excellent weekly newsletter. Contributions of $10 or more a month get you a book or books sent in the mail, a dig tote bag or a dig mug. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Maryam Kaba and Giomar. Maryam Kaba is an organizer, educator, curator, and prison industrial complex, PIC, abolitionist who is active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice. She is the author of the essay and interview collection, We Do This Till We Free Us, from Haymarket Books. Gio Marr is a Philadelphia-based organizer and writer and a professor at Vassar College. He is the author of five books, including A World Without Police, published last year by Verso. Gio Marr and Mariam Kaba, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for, for hosting this conversation. Gio, you write, quote, In the history of the United States, nothing has provoked mass rebellion more consistently than police brutality. But it has never been possible to predict which moments in the seamless fabric of anti-Black violence would toss forth the hottest spark. Given all the brutalities that people in general and Black people in particular face in the United States, why has it so consistently been the brutality of police that has sparked mass uprising. I think, I think in a certain sense, uh, it's not surprising at all, right? You've got, you know, entire categories of people, particularly Black Americans, who are pressed into indignity every day, who suffer it constantly, consistently, and who, you know, explode, you know, in precisely those moments of the sharpest indignity, right? Harassment, police violence, unprovoked. And so it's just this regularity. And I'm not, the, you know, the first person to to point to this. Kiangi Amata-Taylor, you know, does, you know, does really great work on this as well. Uh, the, the ways that, you know, the, these specific moments of police brutality, precisely because they provoke such indignity, allow the surfacing of, of many other frustrations, frustrations around housing, around employment, around systematic inequality um, and discrimination, um, all seem to bubble up in, in these moments of direct encounter with this sort of white supremacist violence of of the state? Yeah, I think for me, it's pretty clear. Years, many years ago, I was writing about the uprisings that happened in Harlem in the 1940s and in the 1960s for a little zine that I made about 
historical moments of violence and policing. And one of the things I found in the research that I was doing was that folks really, when they were asked about the issues that mattered to them the most, and this was when they were interviewing people who'd participated or been around some of these uprisings, the violence of policing was always the number one thing that people would say above unemployment, above health care. So like all the conversations that people were having about what mattered to them and what move them to take action, resistance actions or kind of militant action was the police and policing. And why would that be? For me, my understanding is that that has such a direct impact on you as a human being. It's also a very tangible sign of your second class citizenship within a broader society that you can't access things that other people seemingly can, that you are outside of the purview of the quote-unquote so-called protection of the state. These are things that people feel in a visceral kind of way. You know, it's like, I'm doing all this work. I'm living in this society too. I deserve to be able to be free in it. And so I think to me, that's why policing has such an impact and is such a catalyst for uprising and resistance. Ruth Wilson Gilmore has famously said, quote, abolition is a presence, not an absence. And Maryam, you've said, quote, we are not abandoning our communities to violence. We don't want to just close police departments. We want to make them obsolete. What's this distinction that you're drawing? Why is it important to think about making prisons and police obsolete rather than merely opposing their repressive existence? Yeah, I think because our our project is a project of complete social transformation, first and foremost. If you're a prison industrial complex abolitionist, your goal is to bring another world into being. This is why when you often read the work of PAC abolitionists, you'll read a lot of folks talking about what we want to do is to eradicate the conditions that make people think that they need these death-making institutions at all. The underlying conditions that would lead you to feel like you need to basically be policed in the ways that we are policed. And so that's, I think, a huge part of what most PAC abolitionists think about when we think about transforming the world in order to be able to allow people to thrive in it um, and to have all the things they need to be able to live with dignity. So when Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about abolition as presence, it's not to say that we don't want to tear everything down that is killing our folks. We do. That's absolutely a part of it. But the work that, at least for me, the work that really kind of speaks to my soul and the work that is revolutionary, in my opinion, is the thinking about and the doing of creation and building and figuring out what new ways to have in the world that allow us to interact with each other in a different way so that we can bring about the world we want. I hope that doesn't sound to people 
like academic or removed. It's the opposite. It's really the praxis that is most of interest, at least to me. It's the theory and the how of it, the practice of making the things that is a motivating factor for me. So I don't want to speak for Ruthie, but I know that Ruthie believes in the importance of what she terms rehearsal, which is a form of doing and a form of contending with ideas and a praxis. Yeah, I agree, you know, 100 per percent. Um, and, and I think uh, another way to look at this is to say what would happen today if we abolished the police suddenly and overnight? And I think the answer is that there would immediately be different forms of policing, different forms of containment, um, privatized policing, all of these things. Uh, why? Because we still exist in a society that calls the police into being, right? We still have not rebuilt that society in a way that provides for the creative you know, and productive side of, of abolition. And I think this ties, this is one of the strengths of contemporary abolitionist thought, I think, and ties it directly into its namesake, namely the, you know, the, the abolition of slavery. And the fact that that abolition always needed to be a reconstruction uh, as well. So, you know, the, the institution of slavery is mostly formally uh, abolished, uh, you know, of course, with one glaring exception in the 13th Amendment. But, you know, society is not effectively rebuilt, despite the fact that there were many people struggling and fighting for precisely that rebuilding for economic sustainability, for new forms of existing together collectively outside of white supremacy and outside of, uh, you know, capitalism. But those opportunities were systematically cut off. Black self-government was destroyed by white white terrorism. And so many former slaves were then left to the whims of, of the market. And they were, you know, forced into sharecropping at best, convict leasing at worst. And it's from there forward, of course, that you see this vast continuity of the shortcomings of a first abolition leading to the need for, you know, a far broader and more consistent uh, approach to abolition that centers this question of presence, that centers the rebuilding and the reconstruction of a new kind of society. And this is precisely why people think and speak in terms of a second and a third reconstruction as the counterpart, the necessary counterpart to um, to any abolition worth its salt. Yeah, I think I would just also add, I agree with um, what Gio has to say and to just say that, again, I don't want to ventriloquize Ruthie here, but I think, you know, you had mentioned before um, Ruthie's comment about presence, you know, she also talks about the fact that abolition obviously isn't just absence and points to Du Bois and Black Reconstruction in America in particular to say that abolition is, I think she calls it a fleshly and material presence of social life lived differently. And that speaks to this connection between the need of a tearing down and an eradication and the need of a reconstruction and a restructured society that gives us the things we need to be able to thrive. And so, you know, a lot of PAC abolitionists do close reading of Black Reconstruction as a way not to like saying that these moments are the same, but rather to offer us an analytic frame for thinking about the work still to be done and to have a conversation about the connections between race and class and uh, what doesn't get talked about in Black Reconstruction with gender. Miriam, you write, quote, Changing everything might sound daunting, but it also means that there are many places to start, infinite opportunities to collaborate, and endless imaginative interventions and experiments to create. 
thinking about presence and not just an absence, where does abolition fit into broader socialist mass politics and into, say, movements of workers and tenants? If the goal is to make prisons obsolete, how do you go about doing these two distinct but very related things of building the social alternative while also defunding the repressive status quo? Is is there an order of operations or a strategic relationship between the two? Because one problem that emerges, I think, is that mass incarceration in the carceral state are these provisional resolutions to real social problems that the mm-hmm. state is doing on the cheap. So reallocating funds from oppression to care is huge, but it doesn't get us everything we need, including everything we need to undermine the social basis for a politics of mass repression. How do you two think about both growing and shrinking the state? It's a great question. It's a complicated question. It's one, I think, that points toward these deep complexities within the way that that abolition plays out in practice. I think this builds on what Mariam was just saying and, and the quote also that you read, namely that when you are building this presence, there are lots of places to start. There are lots of different ways um, to contribute. Um, and, and that's absolutely true. Um, and yet one of the complexities that we encounter is that um, the state is so uh, intent on uh, reincorporating anything that we do, any small change into the existing status quo um, in incredibly perverse ways. And so, you know, it's always this difficult balance of, of maintaining the universal sort of absolute horizon of the need to abolish this entire system in all of its aspects and all of its facets and the fact that we need to start somewhere start somewhere concrete start somewhere that builds movements that builds strength you know moving forward Marx was an abolitionist. You know, we should be clear about that. Uh, and not strictly in the sense that we necessarily use the term, but he, he's, he talks about abolishing the world as it exists, abolishing property relations, and of course, doing so through a workers' movement. That's, you know, that's an incredibly complex prospect at the moment. And it raises questions for us about how to reclaim those resources from the state while also understanding that we're opposed to to that state, to the way that it functions. And here, I think questions of defunding and disinvesting, reinvesting are both complex, daunting, but also, you know, holds immense promise, right? Because we're talking about very justifiably taking back resources. This isn't upholding the state. You know, it's insisting that communities need to be able to take back resources that have been stolen from them, that have been looted systematically from those communities, and to make a sort of moral claim to the ability to make decisions about how those resources are used. Of course, uh, you know, this can take the form of a reinvestment in existing public infrastructure, education, with a kind of abolitionist revisioning. Ideally, it takes the form of um, real community autonomy over how to use those resources, how to reinvest them in, in what kind of ways and ways that can be reinvested without without strengthening the state and without strengthening capital and the repressive apparatus. The reality, though, is I think it's very hard for us to envision ahead of time what that's going to look like uh, before we start to push, before we start to make these demands. There are so many pieces involving pushing back on the state, making demands of the state, um, sidelining the state, building communities, building community power and strength. And, you know, what those struggles themselves then bring into being, I think, is is part of this unpredictable unfolding um, that, that abolition is trying to, you know, to press forward. Yeah, I'm, I'm really vibing with what Gio has to say. I have a few things to say about this. I've been in these conversations over a long period of time where abolitionist organizers, abolitionist thinkers have been trying to get more of a sense around what is abolitionists' relation to the state? What do we want 
are we trying to eliminate the state? Are we trying to find a way to actually be quote in control in some way? You know, the 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 notion of like the state is people, but how do we actually get the state to respond to what we want to have happen versus the coercive powers and the carceral powers of that apparatus? And then people also are talking a lot about like, what are the demands that we should have? Should we be demanding certain things from the state? Does that then reify the state and its power, right? So different kinds of anarchist tendencies within abolition, the more social democratic wings of the of the you know of of the framework and the and the vis- political vision. So we've been having these conversations for a while and it's obviously always it's unsettled, right? Because to me, it's clear that a world without police and prison is necessarily one without capital. And that's not an original thought. You know, so many of my teachers and touchstones have made that case much better than I ever will. And then we have this question of, should the demand be an expansion of the social of social welfare policies and a demand then to turn away from punishment and enclosure, which seems to be the place where people are at right now, which is expand social welfare policies, turn away and divest from punishment and enclosure. But while that's happening, the state is constantly reconstituting itself, as Gio says, and recuperating pieces of what we put out there to basically serve the interests of capital, right? So like the chicken or the egg situation that never made sense to me. It's like, we've got to fight on all fronts all the time. And in order to do that, we have to build solidarity so that we can be doing that work together. But I I want to point here to, um, there are there are things happening now that have a lot of promise you know, doesn't mean that those things will be the answer or the solution. But I'm thinking here in particular of the work that's been happening over the past two to three years in Seattle um, with the Seattle Solidarity Budget. Abolitionists really around the world are trying to find the modes of organizing or collectivity towards survival that actually have the most purchase in our time and for our communities. Again, we're trying to work towards that project of a social life lived differently by organizing for what I'm, you know, and others have called abolitionist safety. So that Seattle solidarity budget is a current site of struggle. And it's an example, in my opinion, of solidarity in practice. And a lot of abolitionist organizers are helping to lead that current and ongoing campaign and effort. And if you go to their website at seattlesolidaritybudget.com, it is a call to like have a city budget that actually centers the needs of the most marginalized and vulnerable citizens. It takes on in a direct way anti-Blackness. It insists on funding that's actually, they say, commensurate with the crises that we're facing. It prioritizes collective care and talks very explicitly about what liberation would look like for people in that community. And it has a huge list of endorsers, groups that you wouldn't think would organize together. Labor groups, yes. Climate groups, yes. Religious groups, yes. People who are doing tenant eviction defense work, yes. 
all of those folks coming together and they've done these wonderful people's assemblies to really like fight out what the priorities ought to be for this particular budget. And it provides a, a real framework for safety. And one of the things that they did was demand that the harmful Seattle Police Department be defunded by 50% and investing the rest of those dollars into community-led solutions, which they actually have a whole list of things that ought to go there. That included good jobs and climate investments and all this other kind of stuff. So I guess what I deeply appreciate about the Seattle Solidarity Budget is that it does what I think we most need right now. It's convening people across communities and sectors to have these really robust conversations and more importantly, to make decisions about what those communities most value and want. And to also hash out and, and surface the differences we have when we talk about building a different kind of world. I just lift that up, not to say that ought to be the one thing that happens, but to say that we have examples of people struggling right now over these ideas that often people treat as esoteric or non-grounded kinds of things. No, people are fighting it out right now and arguing with each other in coalition and having tons of conflict, you know? And these efforts that they've had have been pushed back on by politicians and reactionaries who've been trying to derail their initiative. There's been internal conflict among the members of the coalition, and yet they're pressing on and persisting and showing us that really, to me, organizing is the how. So I think we have a lot to learn from those types of local efforts that are really making abolition fleshly. And by the way, every single question that's been asked or, you know, what about this thing is like not a gotcha because people are arguing over this stuff all the time, daily, and then trying to actually take those arguments and make something of them together. There are a lot of threads to follow up on here, and I want to follow up on most of them, starting with exploring a little deeper, a theoretical question that's been raised. Can we imagine a state that doesn't wield a monopoly on violence or does believing in abolishing police and prisons require believing that the state can and should be abolished or perhaps that it will wither away? What is the abolitionist theory of the state? Or I imagine a better way to put it is what are the abolitionist theories of the state? I'm thinking of Golden Gulag where Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls the carceral state the anti-state state. Is, is another kind of state possibly part of or a lot of the solution? I, I think it's an incredibly complicated question. For me, ultimately, it comes down to questions of definition and categories, because I, I think that when we start to think of, of something that looks so radically different, uh, I just don't think that's the state anymore. And I think it's very related to something that became really important to me in terms of thinking through different different structures of community organization and direct democracy and self-defense. Um, because there is a certain, um, again, you know, uh, sometimes like a slightly more, more anarchist angle that would see any attempt to build an alternative power structure in communities as inherently as reproducing the state. And, and I don't think that's, that's true. I, I think we do want and require and need to take seriously 
community demands and aspirations for safety, and especially in the short run, making sure that people are, are, are safe, but that we can do so in ways that don't reproduce the structures of the state and don't re- reproduce the structures of the police. Why? Because the police are a specialized force standing outside of and above the community. And the state, you know, is precisely the same, a specialized force consisting of police, military, bureaucratic structures standing outside of society uh, and above it. Insofar as both those structures are sort of disintegrated into and embedded into everyday practices of of self-government, of direct democracy, of collective uh, self-management of resources, I just don't think we call that the state anymore. You know, maybe that's sort of punting the theoretical question, but I think it's doing so in in really practical ways, which is to say we do need to organize an alternative in, in which, you know, communities take over those pieces of government that the state used to claim as its own. And again, this became very crucial to me because, especially in an international context, You know, I I was looking at communities that are really, you know, doing their best to build an alternative structure, to build it as directly democratic as possible, as participatory as possible. And the last thing I think we should be doing is saying, well, that's just another state. I mentioned that I've been in these conversations with wonderful thinkers, abolitionist thinkers over the past, particularly the last couple of years, we've been having these conversations where different abolitionists coming from different political traditions are thinking through what is the role of the state in abolitionist presence and in abolitionist futures. And we organized something in January of 2020. There was a convening that was held called um, Building Beyond Policing that included several groups. And that was a point that of like constantly people were coming up against the questions raised around that. And from my perspective, in terms of how I'm trying to make sense of all of this, is the question I've had all along, which is, can a state exist without its coercive functions? Is that possible? And I have to think that it can be possible. You know, if I think that it can be possible for us to create the conditions where policing and prisons are obsolete. I have to believe that we can actually figure that stuff out. Not, It's not going to be easy. I also have been thinking a lot about this question of what should we expect from a government that we are living under? Like, what should we expect to have and to get and to do? And I guess my question is, A lot of people are, the reason for us being in a collective government together is resource redistribution and protection. But within the states that we live under, that promise protection always comes with punishment. And then punishment is actually this glue that keeps forces of oppression like patriarchy firmly in place. So we're, we're, uh, we're constantly trying to navigate and be on like a razor's edge over the demands for resource allocation that would be fair, equitable, and give everybody what they need to live dignified lives. And this apparatus of wanting to, quote unquote, have protection from enemies within and, quote unquote, enemies without. And that part of that bargain is the part that the carceral state speaks to and enacts. And so I don't know how we separate that out, but I do know we need some form of collectivity 
And I think, you know, we are in agreement, the anarchist folks and the more social democratic folks and the more communist folks within this broad abolitionist coalition, I think we're pretty much in agreement that we have to find a way of collectivity towards survival. <laughs> the question yeah. then is mm-hmm. like, what is that collectivity and how do we survive? And I say this in, in a way that I'm not laughing about because we just have been finishing a book, myself and Andrea Ritchie, called No More Police. And the chapter on this question literally almost killed us. We were just having to reconcile all these different tendencies, all these different questions about what the state can and should be. Should there be a state? Defining that term, like, what do we mean by that? Does it have to be territorially bounded? Yes, clearly. Is it a collection of institutions and practices that are and can be shaped by people who actually inhabit or enact them and by the historical moment that we're within, right? Like we're citing Graeber and we're doing all these other people. And it's like, no one really knows. Like we're just kind of trying to make sense of it and figuring it out as we move, as we organize, as we figure out what's possible in the moments, historical moments that we live in. So that's all a roundabout way to say, I think we have to just decide what we believe if we think a state has to exist, that what it should do and what it currently does that we don't want. And is there a way to actually shift those things? It's a huge question. And we come down, obviously, for right now, we're like, the state exists. We have to make appeals to it. We have to challenge it. And we have to figure out how to do some things if it's possible without it. And so how to make those things come together is the big struggle and the big fight. And I've appreciated Mijente pulled together the sin estado question, right? Like, can we do anything without the state? inviting people in to think about what could be possible there. Is there anything possible there? William Anderson, who's got a new book out called The Nation on No Map, is like, you know, violence is inherent in the state form and we're not going to be able to get outside of that. And so therefore we need to abolish the state and then keep it moving and figure out other ways of doing collective work together that gets what we need. And then, you know, a lot of other people in the other camps are just like, no, that's not going to happen, man. That's not, you know, we, we can't do that. We have to have some form of a state. Maybe it's not called the state, but we have to figure out how to have a non-coercive state, you know. And so it's, there's just a lot there. Gio, you write, quote, as a metaphor, think of cities built around highways and cars, where it's often difficult to walk or take public transit anywhere. So, too, are we accustomed to navigating a world where policing is built right into the structure of everyday life. How does this work, this deep infrastructure of the carceral state, and how does it fundamentally shape everything? You continue, quote, The quantitative expansion of policing has gone hand-in-hand with, and arguably fueled, an even more sinister qualitative shift in which society as a whole has been refashioned in the image of police. This is what critical theorist Mark Neocleos has called the fabrication of social order by the police. What is this qualitative shift? How has it remade society 
and where does the role of police in remaking society fit alongside these other big shifts that we've seen in recent decades, particularly on the one hand, the neoliberal restructuring of a financialized globalizing economy, and then on the other, this kind of expanding but now crisis-ridden American empire. I'll start with a very, I think, a, a practical question that you know, and, and a, a moment that that I'll never really forget um, in, in like kind of an organizing space in Oakland way back. You know, there's this moment where I remember this this former Black Panther kind of berating a young Black woman for suggesting that, you know what, there are situations in which she might call the police because she feels unsafe and, and she doesn't have alternatives. And that for me really drives home the fundamental question, which is that it's not simply an ideology that we rely on the police, right? We're not just, we, it's not bad conceptions in our head, right? We really do not have alternatives in the world. And I think it's really important to understand that because we don't get out of that by simply refusing to call the police or starting to think differently. We get out of it by trying to rebuild the world in different ways, refabricate it. So that I think for me is a fundamental practical question and, and orientation. And from there, you know, we can look and we can see the fact that this world that we inhabit, which has been built around the police, was a process, continues to be a process. And in fact, you know, was a process that was radically amplified and sped up over the past 50 years uh, in particular. Again, that's daunting, but it, it also allows us to historicize the question of the police. You know, we say very often the police didn't always exist. The world has not always had police. Therefore, that opens the sort of imaginative possibility of a world without them. But even more recently, we could say, listen, there were not police in schools, 50 years ago on the level there today, not remotely. There were not police on public transit in, in libraries. There were not police in private security guards in every hospital in the same way that we see uh, today. And so we really need to understand the way that this world has been fabricated and to understand that process of fabrication bespeaks an alternative, right? It points toward the possibility of, um, of tearing that down, pushing it back, uh, building new spaces without the police. You know, there are campaigns, you know, today to push police out of public libraries because public libraries are sort of catch-all spaces for people that don't have anywhere else to go often, right? And yet they're being more heavily policed and, and librarians themselves are being forced to accept the presence of police in them. So pushing the police out of these spaces, defabricating in a way that world of police. And it's only, you know, hand in hand with that process, I think that you can truly speak of, of alternatives. Again, you can't, I can't tell my neighbor, you know, in West Philadelphia that under no circumstances for ethical reasons should they ever call the police because they live in a dangerous neighborhood. They live in a neighborhood in which they maybe don't have other people to call. But insofar as we can then begin to develop relationships, build community on this block, on the next block over, build rapid response networks that allow people to call one another and to summon all of their neighbors if something's happening, not only with the police, but also something within their family or something between, you know, a dispute with a neighbor and prevent these questions from escalating to the level in which the police would, would be called. I think that's how we begin to build forward. And this is a constant and a permanent orientation, right? Which is to say, it's not simply about changing ideas. It's about changing ideas and strategies in conjunction with shifting and changing the structures of the world. Because in a world of police, people will call the police. Uh, and, and we need to really build that alternative world if we expect them to, to begin to shift um, the way that they, that they behave. Maryam? So from what I understand from reading and, and struggling through Neocleus's anti-security collective you know, orientation, he's basically saying that we have to talk about police power because 
that police power in some ways has like so much purchase in our lives. You know, you have to think about Eric Garner and the case of Eric Garner, that cops could actually strangle him to death in broad daylight. That yes, okay, this is evidence of racism and and corruption and, and all those things. But you have to also understand that act as actually key to the original purpose of police and policing in his opinion that has to do with fabricating order in a capitalist society. So if we can't think about fabricating order, then we're constantly being pulled to the crime control function of supposed police and policing as though the crime control function is not just what they call a technology of police rule. So that we have to be having kind of an expanded concept of police in order to be able to really understand the web of power that they have within our society. And to me, you know, I always like to bring it down to the thing for myself is in a way, the the difficulty of kind of the fabrication of order is that policing then is, is not just simply imposed on people. This speaks to what Gia was saying before, that it is also deployed by people. We actually police each other in various kinds of ways. We actually are in a position of having social policy, which becomes a form of policing as well. Like, and that speaks to the power of police and police power in general. So I think that the the, the anti-security collective kind of thinking around police and policing helps us to really think of an analysis of an expanded concept of police and also makes us understand that police are political actors and that we're really not going to be able to do anything to get rid of them without contending with them as political actors. Like they're not just kind of functionaries or, you know, we talk about civilian rule where they just, we tell them what to do and they do it. No, they're there to fabricate order. They're there to purportedly do some crime control, but you don't, you have to think of that crime control as a part of police rule. And that if you don't like really have that expanded vision and you, you miss a lot about police and policing and you can fall into the trap of thinking that you're gonna quote unquote, do these liberal reforms. <laughs> that are going to take away their power. And like, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. And this, I mean, this idea of police as political actors is crucial, but it's also, it provides great opportunities, right? Because, uh, you know, as the, as the slogan goes, like they have names and addresses, right? They have organizations, they do this every day, right? They have groups, they have specifically so-called unions, they have fraternal orders, they have, you know, bought city council members, you know, these are all moments of struggle. And that's why I put a lot of emphasis in, in, in my book on just like breaking these unions, right? These are, these are, the if you could identify one force that has fabricated this world of police, expanded their power, consolidated it, and pointed it in ever more kind of radically fascistic directions, it's these these police unions. We see that it with Bob Kroll in Minneapolis. We, of course, see it in New York City and Philadelphia as well. And these provide great opportunities for struggle because these are the people negotiating contracts. These are the people negotiating impunity, pushing through legislation. And it points us, I think, directly in, in the strategic direction that, that we need to go in terms of countering that power. 
Yeah, let's talk more about that power exercised through so-called police unions. In, in 2014, NYPD cops launched this all-out campaign of insubordination against Mayor Bill de Blasio because he made relatively mildly critical comments about the killing of Eric Garner. And it was a really revealing moment, I think. But it wasn't a new moment at all. It had echoes of the Giuliani-led police riot against Mayor David Dinkins in 92. And Gio, you write, quote, Police power breaks down all limits and barriers and aspires to a world of total impunity, as the NYPD's war on de Blasio made perfectly clear. Even their extortion isn't purely financial. Wages, overtime, and retirement benefits take a backseat to ensuring that police are not accountable for their actions. Just to get a little deeper into what we were just discussing, at the end of the day, what is the exercise of police political power, particularly through so-called police unions? I mean, it's it's ultimately all about uh, carving out a special place for police outside of the labor movement. It has nothing to do with the labor movement as, you know, as a struggle for benefits for workers, and in part because it centers on this question of impunity. In moments of fiscal tightening and, and austerity, police unions have shown themselves willing to forego raises, right, to forego financial benefits as long as they keep their impunity as long as they expand their impunity. And what this looks like on a local level is arbitration, um, is, you know, um, you know, setting up arrangements uh, that make it nearly impossible to hold police accountable. And we're talking about concrete limits on, you know, how soon a complaint against police officers needs to be filed, how quickly it needs to be resolved, the fact that those officers often are given special rights that others don't enjoy, the fact that they get to pick the people who are investigating them in some situations. These are negotiated on the local level. They're also built into these law enforcement officers' bills of rights, which exist on the state level. You know, if you look at, you know, for example, the Baltimore uh, rebellions, you you see the mayor claiming that there's nothing she could do about these officers because of these agreements that had been imposed on the city. And I think that was passing the buck on a certain level, but it's also very real. And, and, you know, we have state level legislation in Pennsylvania that, according to, you know, uh, the predominant interpretation, forces cities to negotiate directly with the Fraternal Order of Police over everything having to do with their uh, employment. And these are things that have been built. These are things that have been legislated. And the Fraternal Order of Police, you know, and, and other police organizations have been the primary agents behind making these things happen. There are people that that would argue that we can't attack the police unions um, because that would open up a gateway to an attack on public sector unions in general. I think that doesn't hold up, in part because I don't think there's any way to attack police power without attacking the, you know, the so-called unions, but also in part because you don't have other unions that negotiate the right to kill other workers, right? There are no other unions that do that. Teachers' unions don't do that. Nurses' unions don't do that. This is not a union question. Um, and ultimately, if we expel so-called police unions from uh, mainstream union federations, those people will, of course, flock into independent organizations like the Fraternal Order of Police, but at the very least, then we'll know where we're we're at, right? We'll, we'll have this clarity. And the presence, this is an important point that Kim Kelly often makes, uh, the presence of police within mainstream unions makes those unions more conservative, makes their ambitions more limited, falls back on the idea of the union movement and the workers movement as a largely sort of, uh, you know, white factory based or, or, or otherwise movement and reinforces questions like the upholding of, of the border, right? Because you've also got border patrol, you've got ICE unions. Um, and, 
you know, so you get this very limited perspective of the working class. When the working class that we need to be thinking about is primarily and predominantly low-income people of color across borders, right, globally. And that's the real future and the real strength of the labor movement. So these labor arguments that we can't attack police unions, I think, are are sort of, uh, you know, defeated from the beginning. I guess I just constantly want to ask people, are leftists in support of soldiers having unions? Is that something that people are advocating for? And if not, why not? And why wouldn't that same logic be applied to cops who are not guardians, but warriors? What are we really saying? I don't even understand like the premise of having cop unions. It doesn't compute to me. And yet, I mean, I see a lot of the bros on online who are all about the cops are the working class. Really? The cops are the working class? Do people know how much money cops are making right now? If you include their overtime pay, they may have come. Some of them joined the the force having been working class, come from working class backgrounds. But the cops as a profession is now the representative of the working class? What are we talking about here? I mean, I'm interested. I mean, there are people who say that, but I think more more common, you know, you see people who say, well, let's not focus on this question, right? Let's not give the right, you know, any more ammunition against unions. And, and to be completely fair, like you do have people from the Cato Institute, you know, this libertarian think tank saying, you know what we should really do? Let's go after police unions and then do the teachers unions next, right? But but I think the bigger point is that, like, the right has not needed an excuse to attack teachers' unions. It hasn't needed any of that. It's doing that 100% all the time, uh, constantly, just like it hasn't needed an excuse to carve out um, police from austerity, which happened in Wisconsin, right? Like, this has always been the case. Police, as I argue in the book, is, is one big carve-out, right? They don't get the austerity. This is something that Cedric Johnson argues I think is just wrong. Police do not suffer the same austerity as other workers. They don't get the same cuts because they have always not always, but since the early 20th century, occupied a privileged position within the apparatus of the state, and they get paid for that, and they get stability for that. And I think this gets right to, to Mariam's question, right? Which is, uh, ultimately, you could say that Pinkertons or that other hired guards of, of capitalists come from the working class, that they get paid wages, but when they're literally doing the work of, of the capitalists and literally breaking workers' movements and literally killing poor working class people every day, and doing so for, you know, capital, for developers, right, for gentrifiers, then how on earth could you try to make an actual structural argument uh, that those that those are workers or should be treated as such? It doesn't make any sense. I certainly don't think police unions exercise anything but reactionary power in society. I've spent far too much time dealing with FOP Lodge 5 and John McNesby in Philadelphia to, to think otherwise. Yeah, that's real. I mean, there's also this, um, I was reading an article that was written by Cheryl Rivera, actually in Lux, and uh, I really appreciated her quote that I, I keep now in my head, which is, you know, there is no resistance to capitalism that has not been met with batons. Like, yes, yeah, this is the point. They are using their batons to always put down resistance by workers and to cement the power of capital uh, to reign supreme. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. 
This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One recently published a book that might be of interest to Dig listeners like you. Missing Time, a collection of essays by former Dig guest Ari M. Brostoff. In the essays in Missing Time, Brostoff traces the return of many of the 20th century's repressed political and cultural phenomena in personal and collective terms. The book's subjects range from Bernie Sanders' experimental feminist fiction to the end-of-history paranoia that infuses the TV show The X-Files, to Brostoff's own experiences as a tenant organizer during the pandemic. Vivian Gornick, the subject of one excellent essay in the book, calls Missing Time cultural criticism at its originating best. You can find the book at nplusonemag.com slash time and use the discount code DIG, that's D-I-G, at checkout to get the collection for 20% off. What about the so-called war on police? Why do cops have this incredible persecution complex? And how does that persecution complex function both kind of like psychically on the individual cop level, but then more broadly in the exercise of police power. Because we see it not only in this war on police rhetoric in general, but also specifically in these frequent episodes of cops fantasizing that people are trying to poison them or contaminate their McDonald's or Shake Shack, or when they erroneously believe they're overdosing on fentanyl because they are in the same room as fentanyl. What's going on there? As I argue in the book, I think it's it's not just the police. I think it's that this is built into the broader logic of white supremacy, which is a, a logic of turning aggressors into, into victims, right? It's built into the logic of global imperialism in, in that same way, right? You have, of course, the U.S. spreading westward, manifest destiny, but anytime an indigenous community resists it, they're like, well, why are we under attack? You know, how are we the victims of this? You had the, the Texas Walmart shooter massacring what he perceived to be Mexican people, not even all correctly, and issuing a, a statement, a manifesto saying that, you know, they were the victims of an invasion on the southern border of Texas, right? You can't even plausibly argue that there's anything like an invasion of already indigenous and Mexican territory, right? Of course, you know, the U.S. goes to Vietnam and, and is shocked that people would fight back against them as they're globalizing their sort of terror campaign uh, on the world. I think this is a broader kind of white victim logic. And, you know, and I think the police are just a super acute example of that. And you see this throughout. Again, this is nothing new. The war on police was always, this was always the argument when New York City was trying to establish a civilian oversight commission for the first time. This was a war on police. And it always sets the stage for an expansion of police power. I think that's the main point here, is that this sort of paranoia is used and leveraged in the public arena. And it was really in New York that they learned they could leverage that fear and learned that they could pair that with a, a sort of racial fear, because um, it's a war on police. And ultimately, by extension, it's a war on all white people, you know, by by sort of dangerous, you know, communities of color. They learned that in New York, they could use that, they could leverage it, they use it to expand their power and their control. And, and that's what they're doing as well today. You know, I think the only hope is that they're kind of overplaying their hand, that people maybe aren't buying it anymore, that as we point out repeatedly over and over again, being a cop is actually not dangerous at all, right? Like it's less dangerous than most, you know, than most, uh, you know, jobs that you could have. And I think that the argument has started to wear off a little bit, especially as it's so clearly tied to their own unleashing of brutality on communities of color. 
But then you have the emergence of the Blue Lives Matter ideology, which provides a vehicle to expand this reactionary grievance-laden violent authoritarian politics of police unions about police in particular into this broader, more popular politics that's now pretty core to right-wing politics in general. Absolutely. And again, if you look at the FOP, if you look at their platform, if you look at like their wish list they sent to Trump, it's not just about policing. It's about the border. It's about Cuba for some reason. It's about all, it's, it's this whole sort of like composite picture of a, of a right-wing world that they, that they want to build. I, I do think people love the police. <laughs> this country, they love the police. And what is my proof of this? The amount of propaganda, propaganda that folks imbibe in this country is truly, if you think about the hours of all the television shows put together, it's a miracle, frankly, to me that so many people actually resist the violence of policing. It is blanket. So that's one angle of it, that, that just we cannot underestimate how much the propaganda of policing operates on every level, every day, through monuments, through toys, through all these different ways, the, the things that kids get in their children's books, it's everywhere, right? And so that means that cops are pretty popular, even amongst groups that are deeply oppressed by cops. There's a lot of support for them, the gentle civil servant, not the warrior police cop, right? Like these ideas are really rooted. And so therefore, cops can deploy anything they want and still get 60% support, you know, in general. There's a huge chunk of people who aren't in support, but they're popular as an institution. I'm pretty clear-eyed about that when I'm having conversations with folks. I think we have to like contend with the reality of that. And if we have to tell the truth about that, because without that, it's very, very hard to organize. And so every time they cry foul, I mean, it's, it makes total sense. They're at war against certain populations in this country every single day. So when they say we're being attacked, they are being attacked by the people they're warring on. I mean, people aren't just gonna sit down and take it. That's just not gonna happen. And there will be times when people organize themselves to fight back against that kind of war making on particular communities in this country, communities of people of color, particularly black people, black poor people in particular. Like we can go down and be much more granular at that level. But I don't think we can get away from the popularity of police as representatives of the institution of policing. You can even see it in black middle class communities, the way that people want to be like, well, you know, there's only a couple of bad ones. And if we just get rid of those bad ones, we can keep all the rest. That's not just the function of fear of crime. Many people live in communities where there's almost no quote unquote violent crime whatsoever to speak of that is like, you know, brought up to fair. There might be violence in the community, particularly if in your family, if like domestic violence is present and other forms of interpersonal violence, but not the quote street violence that we often think of cops being the bulwark against. But those folks also find a way to be like the officer friendly, gentle civil servant, the only thing keeping us from those violent mobs. You know, all that stuff is really, really rooted there. So I, I just want to add that because I do think to not see that and to not engage that doesn't get us far. The George Floyd protest movement felt 
so full of hope. So many things seemed possible. But right now, it often feels like a really long time ago. What do you make that after this period of time where every Democratic politician and corporation was, was rushing to emphasize how much Black lives matter to them, that we're now experiencing what seems like a pretty powerful reaction with Joe Biden getting this bipartisan standing ovation during the State of the Union address when he declared that we must fund the police. These days, you hear fewer people, at least in in high places, calling to defund the police than you do people denouncing defunding the police, or yet more depressingly, people accusing other people of supporting defund the police who don't even support defunding the police. I feel like we're short of in the worst of all worlds right now because first, we failed in most cases to win actual defunding of the police. And yet, second, the right wing and pro-police forces have made people believe that we did indeed defund the police. And that's why there's this bump in violent crime right now. A bump in violent crime, of course, that has nothing to do with policing at all. And that has a lot to do with the pandemic. Why, to put it bluntly and maybe pessimistically, maybe more pessimistically than you would put it, why are we losing so much right now? I would put it less pessimistically, only because I think we're full on amid counterinsurgency, right? Like this is counterinsurgency mode. This is an attempt, an active attempt to use all forces of the state and the media to make us forget what was possible in June 2020, coming up on on two years of this now, right? To erase that possibility, to sort of stamp it out of our minds and to sort of bring us back to so-called reality, which is simply accepting, you know, the status quo, accepting the existence of police and, you know, and their necessity. And the reason I say that, that it's a bit less pessimistic is because there's a reason that they need to do this, right? There's a reason that people need to constantly be trying to sort of, you know, uh, sort of pound this into our, our heads. And despite that, I don't think we've gone all the way back to zero. Despite the fact that, for example, the, you know, Minneapolis City Council was blocked by their charter commission from having an actual referendum on defunding or dismantling the police when they should have. And it was put off for an entire year from 2020 to 2021, despite this sort of wave of counterinsurgency narratives, despite all the efforts of the Fraternal Order of Police, of the popular police chief, in fact, in Minneapolis, despite all that, the measure almost passed, right? And, and I think that's, uh, you know, incredibly uh, a good sign. And there are different ways to to look at this, you know, uh, different angles to see kind of the same thing. One is that, you know, of course, we ended up electing a segregationist and a cop, right, amid uh, this wave of, of mass anti-police resistance, but it didn't need to be that way, right? And, and in some cases, it was, it was close to being and turning out very differently. And still, you know, one, one, I think, final way to look at it has to do with, you know, precisely the question that, that Mariam raised about the popularity of police as reflected in propaganda. And I also think, and I always try to remember that, you know, while this is a reality that to be confronted in conversations with neighbors, with community members, um, and always needs to be, you know, we do need to be clear out about it. I think the existence of propaganda is also a testament to the need for it. They need to be constantly reminding people that the police are good because, you know, A, people don't always see them. B, people often experience the worst of what policing does and are increasingly skeptical of the institution of policing. So I think there's a reason that they're doubling down from all aspects of our life. But it is, I mean, Philadelphia, you know, you cannot deny the unprecedented murder rate in Philadelphia. And so it's been very easy 
for the right to push back. It still hasn't been enough to sort of obliterate the experiment that Krasner, uh, you know, in the DA's office is trying to sort of uh, maintain. But it is something that we need to be constantly putting out counter arguments to, right? Real explanations for what's happening, real explanations for why, you know, the lack of pandemic response and many other pieces are, you know, contributing to this and not, you know, defunding, which of course, as you said, didn't happen. I'm definitely not on the pessimist train ever, really. It calls for a certain certainty that I don't have. I'm just not sure, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. It could go the, it could go this way or it could go that way. Like, I have no idea. And I'm always willing and uh, expecting to be surprised. And that, I think, has kept me in good stead over 35 years of doing this kind of organizing work. So um, I think we can't underestimate what a global pandemic that none of us in our lifetime has lived through, what it has shaped and unshaped and reshaped that we're still in the midst of right now, that we cannot underestimate the social dislocations and also the opportunities and windows that such a monumental life-transforming experience brings to the forefront. So within that context, I think that context is very, very important for any conversations we have about anything. I really think that we lose a lot if we're not thinking about what we've experienced, what we've been going through in a broad way, the complete like basic fears of like, what are we going to do to live in this moment? Are we going to survive this? You know, the cops are still bashing people's heads in. What? What's going on here? right? Like all these things coming together. I think we have to disentangle that over time. And I'm absolutely amazed at the number of people who have an ear for abolitionist arguments in this moment. I will tell you right now, 20 years ago, we were laughed out of rooms completely. No one really deeply took abolitionist ideas seriously in any sort of way. And to go from that to this moment is to me like miraculous. I believe we're in a war when it has to do with law enforcement. And so therefore, I'm not a backlash person. I'm a perpetual frontlash person. I think that what we are dealing with is a perpetual state of frontlash. And we have to get our forces in order and figure out our moves and our strategies, not in a reactionary way, but always looking ahead, looking ahead to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Because like we said, the state will always adapt. So will the forces of the death-making institutions. And we need to be doing the same thing. And listen, the next rebellion, people will be asking for complete abolition. And at that point, the liberals will be running for defund. And so my thing is, Defund makes total sense to me as a framework and a strategy on the way towards what I want, which is abolition. It makes total sense to me. It is a completely legible demand. It is a lie that people don't understand what it means. People, of course, know that what it means. It's just that the many people don't like what it means. We're not dealing with like a complicated set of policies that like, how come no one is ever yelling about the fact that no one can make sense out of any democratic proposals about anything? 
Nobody knows what the fuck Section 8 is unless they, and when they are in it, they have to navigate all these bureaucracies and all this paperwork. But it's so hard to access them. People aren't sitting back. All oh, those policy wonks are so hard. Defunding means defunding. Take the hell money. Take resources away from this death-making institution. That's it. And yes, people say, and put it back here. Yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, they're defunding everything else. And people know perfectly well what the hell that means. Again, you just may not like it. And sometimes people will still agree with you, even if they don't like it, by the way. Little tip for some of these people who don't actually want to think about what it takes to organize. Just because someone says, oh, I may not agree with that, doesn't mean they don't say, well, you still have a point. I'm still willing to at least be neutral on the point. I'm not going to fight you. That's a lot because then you're not your opponent and you have some opportunity to keep moving your agenda forward. I think people should just put on some music, get in their houses, do a little, you know, dancing, go eat some good food with other people if you can, hug your kids and come back to fighting for the next day. We've got to do it. And yes, we're, there's a moment right now of repression and retrenchment and, you know, neo-fascism. And now we have a war going on, you know, uh, that, that feels like it could potentially be a nuclear showdown. Lots of things happening in the world. And guess what? None of us can control almost any of those on our own. And what we can do, though, is figure out in our particular place in our time where we are, what is within our control to impact and go guns blazing for that. And, you know, we're always losing in, in organizing. We lose so much more than we win, but we do win sometimes. We absolutely do. And it's worth all the effort and energy put into the organizing to have some of those wins too, because ultimately what I see as our work is to lessen suffering however we can, wherever we are. And if you can see yourself doing that in the work you're trying to do in the world, you're winning. Trust me, I'm not naive. And I had one campaign, so I'm not like, I'm not talking out of school here, you know? So like, I'm not, I'm not not paying attention. I'm not Pollyannish. I'm not, but I'm also not pessimistic in the least. Gramsci talked about what he called the war of maneuver versus the war of position. And there's always this complicated dynamic intention between moments of mass uprising that are hard to either manufacture or predict on the one hand, and then on the other hand, building the sort of organizations, institutions, and cadre that any left project also needs mm -hmm. to transform society. How do you both see this relationship between these two core dimensions of socialist or abolitionist strategy and how people are organizing and should be organizing? I think that distinction or that, that complementary relationship between war of position and war of maneuver is precisely, I think, what allows us to, to, to grasp what, what Mariam is saying, right? Which is that next time the demands will be more advanced. And we've already seen that. You know, there's this great quote, you know, from, from one of the organizers out of Minneapolis who said, listen, back in 2015, we knew what we we're against. Now we know what we're for. Or we knew what the problem was. Now we know what the solution is. Right. And there's a clear advance, you know, in these questions. If you go in my, you know, I really sort of started doing this stuff around Oscar Grant and the leaps that we've made since then have been really tremendous. And 
one of the good things about, you know, again, Gramsci's notion of hegemony or sort of like ideological development and preparation, you know, among people is that you don't lose all of that, right? It's, it's really hard for all of that to be erased. We get pushed back. We get on the back foot rhetorically. The media turns against us. And yet people, especially younger people, especially Zoomers, are, are not really fooled, right? They're not, they're not forgetting so easily, right? Like in the same ways that Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant, you know, were on my lips, you know, you have, uh, you know, this, this new generation that, that is thinking of Breonna Taylor, of George Floyd, and, and will, you know, those names will, will remain with them as will the horizon, as will the, the possibility of something kind of radically different. Um, and, and so, you, you know, the question is, right, in between those moments of upsurge, explosive possibility, how is it that you make that possibility kind of stable in time and space, right? How do you make it, how do you allow it to sustain itself? How do you build relations between people that are lasting? How do you b build social spaces or uh, bookstores or community organizations that can sustain some of that? You'll never sustain all of that energy, but what you will do is prepare the grounds for a heightened reaction in the future. And I see this as kind of a plateau. You know, the rebellions of 2020 were an incredibly high plateau. Uh, that allowed us to see further, you know, and think in more precise and advanced ways. And that will be so valuable, you know, next time things pop off. And there will be a next time, because this is the point that I also think is often missed by people, which is that the cops continue to kill at least three people a day. Now, they are still harassing and harming people. But nothing has changed around that. And as long as nothing changes around that, I promise you, there will be a revolt again because people aren't going to allow people to do this to folks without a response. It's just not going to happen. That response may look different for the time being. People may have different concerns. It may take a different kind of thing to kindle the next revolt, but it's going to continue because the conditions are the same. Folks can choose to close their eyes now and pretend things are not there anymore and they can choose to ignore. We're very good at that as humans. We can compartmentalize with the best of them. We can also have cognitive dissonance. So like the facts don't fit my belief, therefore the facts aren't the facts. We're good at that. We've seen that throughout this pandemic, right? These things are possible. Humans can do that thing, but they know. Folks know that the cops are still killing people. And so the conditions are the same. The consciousness has shifted. And to me, that is going to help us to get to the stage through which we can have building enough power to also shift the conditions. I don't have to do anything except to continue to create opportunities and spaces for us to think together, to build together, to organize towards the horizon we want together. Now, there's some real challenges here around resourcing that because how do you resource that at scale enough? I think about that all the time. I'm like, the right is, they are just committed to resourcing their institution. They also have access to Boku capital and dollars to be able to do so. So the, the, there's real asymmetry there of resourcing, but there are a hell of a lot of supposedly rich liberals who could be funding a whole infrastructure of training, of spaces for democratic argument? Conferences are so important. The evangelicals know this because 
I have gone to some evangelical mass conferences. Like these people, they know they got to get together in spaces together to either share materials, share ideas, just build connections and network. Oh, you're from Peoria. Oh, I'm from wherever, you know, like let's, let's, let's connect. Here's a whole booth on homeschooling. You know what I mean? Like those things friggin' matter. <laughs> they matter a great deal. And to me, those, we have to be working on that right now. This is a good time for us to do that. Let's prepare. Let's prepare for what's to come. There will be a wipeout. Maybe that will allow people to think of something else than focusing on the federal level for a minute. Like the midterm to me, like the Democrats are going to lose. It was built in, in terms of a structural thing against them. Now with them doing nothing on voting rights, antagonizing various members of their particular coalition, whatever, we know what's going to come. They're going to lose power at that level. What are we doing now at our local levels to continue to push forward on the agendas we want. And, and let us be decoupling ourselves a little bit to the federal side and national politics. Perhaps this is the moment to focus on local politics even more intensely. Get our people into the library boards. Get our people into the school boards. Get our people into the friggin' environmental water committee boards. Like these places are making major decisions that have such a more direct impact on your day-to-day living than fucking Joe Biden does, okay? People know my antipathy for this man and it has been longstanding. And I don't want to hear from a single person that's doing work on criminal punishment issues for one minute about being disappointed in him. Are you fucking kidding me? This guy? (laughs) Well, I sat in a room with in 1994 and he sat there talking to Black people like we were nothing condescending as fuck i've known that man okay (laughs) this is not a surprise for a long time since the founding of critical resistance in 1997 and maybe before and up up till blm erupted in 2014 abolitionist activists and organizers were often focused at a particular scale of activity mutual aid and letter writing to prisoners or as we saw in Philly about a decade ago, um, and something I, I covered a bit, campaigns against the construction of a new jail or prison in a particular place. I think at that time, prior to 2014, it was also more focused on prisons than police. Now, the number of adherents to abolition has grown exponentially, and the movement has really taken off nationwide. What sort of challenges does that present for the movement as it passes through new wider forms of politics, including these raucous street protests and also electoral organizing. What sort of organizations have been built that can outlast the movements of spectacular mass uprising and make the next moment stronger? Have the modes of abolitionist organizing changed? And if so, what what sort of challenges are involved with moving towards, on the one hand, a mass political strategy, and on the other, navigating the world of, say, progressive nonprofits, the infamous NPIC. What's the last decade or so looked like? I was, so maybe this speaks more to sort of my my mindset, particularly when I was younger and I was, you know, organizing in the Bay Area. Critical resistance, you know, was a huge presence and abolitionist thought in general was expanding, uh, you know, in this period. But, you know, maybe for a couple of, of reasons, including personal kind of predilection, I was 
I was always thinking to myself, you know, it's really hard to organize inside out organizing, organize with, you know, incarcerated people. You know, why not center more the mechanism that feeds the prisons, right, and, and, and push back on policing? And this was also built on this, this sort of reading of the police as everyday upholders of the color line in a, in a Du Boisian sense, fabricators of that color line. And so seeing anti-police organizing as something that was able to potentially disrupt and push back on, you know, that process and contribute in that way to decarceration or preventative kind of decarceration in a certain sense. I like to compare that 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 sort of early wave of, of, of abolitionist organizing to, again, to, to first wave abolitionists and, and to point out the fact that what's really incredible about abolition as a framework and as a strategy is that it was not, you know, the abolition of slavery was not a majority position until very shortly you know, not even before the, the Civil War, but during the, the Civil War, right? It was a fringe position held by fanatics who were so dedicated to abolishing and extirpating this evil from society that they dedicated their entire lives to it. And it was in that process of kind of extremist dedication that they helped turn the tide. And I think that's, I think that's what, you know, prison abolitionists did as well. We should not downplay the role and, and you know of prison abolitionists and, and critical resistance in transforming the way that we view mass incarceration, which I think that tide has been turned in an incredibly radical way, thanks to the dedication of these theorists and organizers and, and everyone nationwide. And, and I think it's it's great to see this extending, you know, to incorporate policing and you know and all other pieces of the you know of the broad prison industrial complex. I think that there are certain challenges that that come up when you know these movements mainstream, you know, and again we've pointed toward the sort of incorporation of our own strategies into the the functioning of the system. And then Mary mentioned Brendan McQuaid, who's did great work on on Camden right across the river here uh, from Philadelphia. And what's so troubling about that is, you know, and people probably remember that when the when the rebellions popped off, everyone all of a sudden started talking about the, the Camden model, which Brendan has is, is been the, the, the main person to debunk as any kind of alternative because it was, you know, this so-called abolition of the city police when in reality, the, the city police in Camden were simply replaced by a wider, more technologically advanced county force, which, you know, has established total, you know, sort of information control um, and surveillance over this city, this utterly abandoned post-industrial city that is, that is Camden. What's even more perverse, though, is the fact that, you know, for example, when I first moved to Philadelphia, a lot of the main movements were around decarceration, right? And decarceration is crucial to our understanding, uh, you know, how to move toward abolition. But what Brendan identified in Camden is the fact that, you know what, people are being decarcerated and decarcerated, right? The number of people who are being released from New Jersey prisons is incredible, but they're also being maintained under a new and, in fact, cheaper form of uh, surveillance and control. Uh, and so just a, that's just a point of the ways in which, you know, we need to be constantly aware of how our own demands are reincorporated by capital, are reincorporated by white supremacy. And that doesn't mean we don't fight to get people out of prison. It means we have to expand our horizon even more to understand sort of these new strategies of the repressive state. Just a couple of things on my end. I think the question of like what the organizing that's happening right now that is uh, rooted in an abolitionist political vision and organizing strategy that's abolitionist. It's a question that has a hundred million different responses, mainly because so many groups have emerged to do this work over the last few years, many of whom I don't even know, which gives me, again, is a source of comfort 
because I would be really sad if I knew about everything that was going on. I, I was lucky enough, um, we were uh, doing a, a cohort with some folks, part of Interrupting Criminalization. We've been doing some uh, support of organizers in local communities around defund campaigns. And, you know, I was so interested to meet young folks in Utah who've been doing this work and have moved from doing defund work to taking their ideas to working on housing. There's just so much of that happening. You know, I'm thinking of Action St. Louis and the really amazing work they're doing to close that workhouse and also to do this other very deep local work about expanding social welfare so that people can actually live and live to fight another day. Like I'm thinking here about the incredible work that the Sunrise Movement, that they are now getting, you know, pilloried by the likes of the ridiculous centrist pundits for. They give me so much hope when I hear those young folks who came to a a session that I did last summer around the intersections between climate and prison industrial complex abolition. Like they're breaking that stuff down. How much do I know about climate justice? Very little, superficial. It's not my area of deep dive focus. I haven't read all the theorists. But here were young people who were wrestling with the knowledge and the ideas from PAC abolition and climate work rooted in an anti-racist, anti-capitalist framework. Hello, hello. And I'm sorry, but if you're not doing this work on that level with people, you don't know this is going on. I understand why you're despairing. But for me, I'm seeing all these connections being made, all these places I maybe don't anticipate as needing to do this on the ground work. I'm, I'm thinking about Tayer in, in, in Puerto Rico doing some of the most interesting, useful safety work in the community without police and policing and taking it at the level of domestic and sexual violence, going right to the core of that and wrestling with the big ideas around that. I'm thinking about the table that just started of folks who are just beginning to do organizing, but also to run projects in their communities around responding to mental health calls without relying on the cops, you know? I see this work happening in so many different places. I'm seeing the conversations we had with with South African comrades who were here recently, and they're talking about how to think about doing transformative justice work there, where they're at, to address interpersonal violence and to push back against police and policing in the context that they're living under. I'm thinking about a delegation of Afro-Brazilians who are coming here to New York City next week. You know, like people every friggin' where in the world are contending with some of the same issues, some different issues, very different context. And we can learn from each other and are learning from each other every single day. So I think those are the things that I would point to as concrete ways that abolitionist organizing has been expanding, expanding and growing. And the consciousness of abolitionist ideas has been infusing lots of other places and lots of other people's thinking. I'm very interested to have more conversations with the housing justice folks around abolition and PIC abolition. Housing could not be more central to domestic violence, could not be more central to all of the other issues that people are dealing with. And how can you talk about a housing justice without thinking of environmental justice and climate justice? You cannot not in any real serious way. So we're being pushed by the realities we're living in to actually broaden out our analysis, 
and think more deeply about issues that maybe we wouldn't think about before. And last thing I'll say is I want to uplift critical resistance here for a minute, because the way that people talk about CR sometimes as though CR is this place where a bunch of eggheads kind of come together and do what, totally erasing all the formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people who had a role in building CR, who still are engaged in CR work, number one. Number two, the analysis that was given to many of us, that opening, my politicization at the hands of CR. I think it was Rachel Herzing who was in a space years ago and said something like, you know, this, all of this is operating as designed. That's an abolitionist insight that now people treat it like the common sense, but it wasn't the common sense, which tells you the common sense is constructed to the point where you then forget who gave you the idea to begin with. And that's what we're after. I want abolition to be irresistible. So I don't spend all my time thinking about all the 10 million ways it's going to get co-opted. Because guess what? It will be co-opted because every fucking thing is co-opted. But if you spend all your time focusing on the co-option, you're not doing the work of the next thing we ought to be moving towards. Go ahead, do your thing. Try to incorporate us, recuperate us, bring us into... But what are we up to now? What new horizons, what new visions... What new analysis based on changing circumstances have we developed? Because by the time they're recuperated, we're moving on. We got some new fish to fry. And the more people join us, by the way, the fucking better. I don't care. And again, I'm not loved on this. I know. I don't care. I want as many people as possible to get into the tent. Now, once you have people into the tent, you got to provide opportunities for continued political education. And that need not be sitting in a room and reading a 350-page book. That can be reading some zines. That can be watching some videos and films together. That can be commenting on art. That can be listening to songs and breaking down the lyrics and connecting that to politics. All things many of us have done in order to be able to learn and grow and develop our own analysis and our politics and are continuing to do now as we continue to evolve because we're never stopping. You don't stop learning. I am learning every day. I am constantly reading five books at once. Why? Because there's so much shit I don't know. (laughs) I'm trying to piece together so many different things because these issues are complex because if they weren't, people would have resolved them already. So let's be a little bit more charitable to people and welcoming. And I don't want to be part of clubs. I want to be part of movement. We need that. We need a lot of people. So welcome for everybody who is new to the concepts of abolition and struggling through it and trying to figure out, guess what? Join us. Those of us who've been abolitionists or you know, embracing an abolitionist politics for the last couple of decades are still struggling with the ideas. It's okay. Come in, add your ideas to the pot. Let's see how it goes. 100% cosign on that. And I agree that there is some controversy over, you know, over the size of the tent, right? Over the different sectors, over who all, you know, now constitutes this broad abolitionist movement. And, and I think it is a little jarring sometimes for people who are, are used to it being a small club, right? And this is precisely how, this is what, you know, philosophers will call the, the empty signifier of abolition, right? But the strength of that is is that it allows people to plug in in different ways for different reasons. And I think the distinction that Mariam draws between bringing people in and then engaging in political education and also bringing people in and then having 
you know, sharp debates over strategy, you know, concrete debates over, you know, over what might be more easily co-optable than another strategy. I think that's all that's all crucially uh, important. But abolition is a mass movement or, or it's nothing at all. You know, it's something that aspires to this sort of radical transformation of our envisioning of the society, of society, what it should look like, our imagining of this alternative, projecting that alternative as something that we can aspire toward and fight toward. And that has to be grounded in, you know, in everyday struggles, you know, that, that you know, masses of people uh, are engaging in, just not just small, you know, not just small groups of people. And also, please, we got to also always remember that abolition and the, the theorizing of it owes so much, a huge chunk to the theorizing of the folks who are behind the wall, the folks who've been criminalized. They are the makers of these ideas as much as anybody. And to me, whatever we're going to build has got to have them at the center with us, struggling every day. And so you asked before about you know, the letter writing and the community local level of work and the one-on-one relationship. I will never stop that work. That is critical. That is the foundation upon which all abolitionist organizing must begin and end. We are trying to free our folks. That is critical. PIC abolition is not just about the police. It is also about the prison. It is also about surveillance. It is also about having everything we need in order to have dignified lives. And that is not death-making institutions. That is life-affirming and life-giving institutions. So for me, critically, critically important that we center incarcerated peoples. And I mean politicized incarcerated people. This is another point. I'm not, I'm not trying to be like whatever identity you have or whatever kind of experience you have supersedes an analysis of the world. I think we must have both. I think we must have a tent wide open to have as many people as possible come into those, those spaces. But we do have some things we have to agree on. <laughs> you're not a PIC abolitionist if you're not interested in eradicating the PIC. Like that, we can, there's some, there are a few, it's not a million tenants, but there are a couple, like we gotta, we gotta be agreeing on in order to be able to join in. So join us, be part of it. The water's fine. Bring more people in. (laughs) No, nobody's going to like, you know, I mean, you know, abolitionists are usually weirdos. If you want to be part of, with a bunch of weirdos, come and join us. Well, Giomar and Miriam Kaba, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for for having us. It's really been a tremendous conversation. Miriam Kaba is an organizer, educator, curator, and prison industrial complex abolitionist who is active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice. She is the author of the essay and interview collection, We Do This Till We Free Us, from Haymarket Books. Gio Mar is a Philadelphia-based organizer and writer and a professor at Vassar College. He is the author of five books, including A World Without Police, published last year by Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, which manages its own general interest in and through them. Rather, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. 
The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel, Gemma Sack, and Mariel Solomon. Our senior advisor is Fia Riofrancos. A very big thanks to Ben Maybe for helping me prepare for this interview. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review, a review and a rating, etc. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, which is great. But what really and truly does that is you telling people that you know to listen to the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.